by way of introduction to our text, which is in John chapter 1, I want to read to you first from another book John wrote, uh, Revelation, the end of your New Testaments. Revelation 1, starting in verse 14. Here's why I want to start in Revelation. I've been praying for you this week and for myself, two specific things both found in this passage of Revelation. The first one is that we will be awestruck by the glory of Christ like never before. Awestruck by his glory. Here's Revelation 1. This is John having a vision of the risen Jesus. Here's how he describes him. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like a roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John was awestruck with the glory of Jesus. Encountering Jesus through his word is not the transfer of information from me to you. It's an encounter with a power. When was the last time you were awestruck by the glory of Christ? That's my first prayer for you and me today. Here's the second one. That we would be comforted by the power of Christ. John goes on. Remember, he fell at his feet like a dead man but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. That's comforting power. So let me ask the Lord again to do that in us today. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would, um, in our hearts, so speak and shine through your spirit that we would fall before you. And then that you would so touch us and comfort us with your power that we would have the strength to stand up and take comfort and strength from your power. Would you do that, and would you glorify yourself in our midst today? Amen. All right, let's turn to our text, uh, John chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 5, and I'm going to focus in just on verses 4 and 5. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In these verses, John makes four propositions, four statements of truth that we need to hear. The first two 
are to help us be awestruck by his glory and the second two to be comforted by his power. So we're going to follow those four statements uh, as kind of the four main points today. So number one, the first proposition, in him was life. Excuse me. In him was life. This statement rolls off the tongue, glances off the mind without leaving much of an impact on us. In him was life. But it was written to stun. It was written to stagger. So to try to get our minds around it, we're going to approach it from the other angle. This is talking about him and life. We're going to talk about us and life for just a moment so that we can understand the full impact. So I have a couple of illustrations. Uh, Tonight, we are having sandwiches for dinner, and I'm very excited about it. Uh, We love a good sandwich. Becca made the bread, uh, sourdough. It's going to be amazing, as always. And I think Kate gave the starter. Thank you. It's delicious. Uh, And the rest, thank you, dear. Um, We went to the store and bought the ingredients. But what if we tried to make it from scratch? Like really from scratch? What if I tried to make one sandwich alone? I'd have to somehow acquire wheat and grow a field of wheat and then harvest it and separate the chaff from the grain and then grind it with a mortar and pestle into, I'd have to make a mortar and pestle and grind it into flour, right? And then I'd have to get a chicken save one of its eggs, kill the chicken, pluck it, cook it, take that egg, combine it with the freshly pressed olives that we just grew from our olive trees to make mayonnaise. That's how you make mayonnaise, eggs and olive oil. (laughs) Um, Get a cow, raise a cow up, milk the cow, make cheese. I don't know how to do that, but that's how it happens apparently. You, You see my point. The amount of work to go into one sandwich would take, well, uh, someone did it. Someone tried this. He took a ton of shortcuts and it still took him six months and $1,500 to make a sandwich. And I saw a video of him taking a bite of that sandwich and he kind of just looked at the camera and said, it's not bad. (laughs) Six months of my life, he said, for not bad. We are the furthest thing from self-sufficient. We live in an illusion of independence. We think that we can just do stuff for ourselves, forgetting that in even a sandwich, probably a thousand people have participated in bringing that to your dinner plate. We are not independent, self-sufficient people. We can't do it on our own. Think of it this way. I was talking with a couple of people earlier about like, what would you bring if you could bring one thing to a desert island, you know, if you're stranded on the island, we've all done the thought exercise, haven't we? And often you get silly responses um, about, you know, the war and peace, because I'll finally have time to read it or whatever. But if we're being practical, I mean, you'd bring a boat, right? Like you'd bring something useful. And, you, you know, 500 feet of paracord or a cell phone with a battery pack or whatever, The reason why we go that route is because we're so deeply needy. We're so entirely not self-sufficient that we knew if we were stranded on a desert island, we're the only human there, we're going to be in serious 
trouble. We need technology. We need community. We need society. We need warmth and friendship and fellowship. There's a reason why Swiss Family Robinson flourished. And Tom Hanks went insane with a volleyball and called it Wilson. He was alone. We're the furthest thing from self-sufficient. I think if God, this is cheesy, and I don't know it's cheesy walking into it, but if God were stuck on a deserted island, I think he'd bring you. Do you know why? He is self-sufficient and he needs nothing. So he's entirely free to do what he wants and to be with whom he wants. And he likes you. (laughs) God has no needs. We are dependent. He is self-existent. That's what John is saying. In him was life. Because he is self-sufficient and self-existent, then he's absolutely and truly free. So when God creates, it's out of joy and love, not out of need. God does not need sacrifices and worship. Jesus didn't die because he needed a following. He died freely because he loves you. That's a big difference. In Acts 17, 24 and 25, Paul says this um, while preaching in the Areopagus. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, and breath, and everything. That's the staggering claim that John's making in verse 4. In him was life. Jesus shares in God's self-existence. Jesus has life in and of himself. We have life derivatively, right? One of the kids asked this a few weeks ago. Like, did I exist before I was in the womb? No. There was a time when we were not. And then life was granted to us from somebody else. Right? We owe our existence to parents and so on. Jesus has life in and of himself. He's not derived from anything. He shares in the self-existence of God. As theologian Gerhardus Voss put it, he said he is the self-sufficient ground for his own existence and being. The more you think about that phrase, the more it blows my mind. Um, In his first letter, John's first letter, aptly named 1 John, he so closely associates the concept of life with the person of Jesus that they become entangled. You could call Jesus life himself. Listen to what he says in the first three verses of 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life, this is it, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. 
That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In him was life. The eternal life that was with the Father was made manifest in the person of Jesus, the Word. And we can have fellowship with the self-existent one. Now there are, uh, before we move on to point number two, there's two mistakes that we can make here, just to be doctrinally careful, okay? Uh, The first mistake is to assume that existence is like a ladder, that being or life is like a ladder, and Jesus is like us but better, and he's on the top rung. And then we're a couple notches down. We're a couple rungs down below, but we're on the same scale. We're on the same ladder. But that's not how it is. The distance between us and God is not one of quantity, but of quality. He's entirely different because he's the creator and we are the created. The second mistake is to think that because of that unfathomable distance then, the same the distance between a creator and the thing that he creates, that's a big that's a big distance. Uh, but because of that distance, it would be a mistake to think that God is apathetic and aloof, disconnected from our reality, to think that he emotionally is deadpan. That's not the case at all. God is not settled into a cold and imperious distance from his creation. We're made in his image, and part of what it means to be made in his image is that we have this whole range of emotions that we've all felt in the last week, the ups, the downs, the highs, the lows, God has them all. We get them from him, but he has them perfectly. I feel joy imperfectly and I feel sadness thoroughly, but imperfectly. I feel lots of things. God has all of those in their perfect form. God feels joy. Jesus has been anointed with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. He's actually the happiest person alive. God feels longing, right? God feels grief. And God has suffered deeply. The comforting warmth of the doctrine of God is not that he's distant and apathetic, but that he condescends to be so very near as to take our own human nature upon himself. I I don't know, I mean, it's a trite thing to say, the idea of an author writing himself into his story. But it's a great analogy. That's what God did. That's why John says the word, when he was with God and was God and has life in himself, the word became flesh. In Jesus, God became touchable killable. And he did it freely. Not out of need, but out of love and joy and mercy. Isn't that awesome? Number two, number two, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Now there's something about light that just stirs the imagination and warms the heart 
Um, there's lots of reasons why we have to keep the curtains closed in this room. One of them is the temperature. The other is the glare on the screens. But if we were to throw open the curtains right now, I guarantee endorphins would be released in all of our brains. We would all feel a little better with the morning sunlight streaming through the window. And of course, it's always been that way. In every ancient culture, light has been this venerated symbol, worshipped even. Right? Egyptians with their sun god Ra, and Greeks with Helios, and Persians with Mithra, and Romans with Sol. Like, we've worshipped the sun. Not we. <laughs> I hope we haven't worshipped the sun. But many, many, many cultures, in fact, almost every culture, has at some point worshipped the sun. Because they've associated light with the idea of flourishing, warmth, life. So, you got flourishing, but also enlightenment. I don't mean when your eyes see more light, I mean like rationality, wisdom, the intellect, the mind, reason. And the Bible portrays God as the true light, the truly glorious one, and he's the one who causes us to flourish. All flourishing comes from him. We sing it at the beginning of every Sunday. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. He's the source of it. He's the fountain of everything that's good. And his light is enlightening to the mind and the reason. It doesn't stifle it, by the way. Christians have been thinkers as long as they have existed. Some of the deepest thinkers. Uh, we read Psalm 36 in our call to worship this morning. Let me just read, from you, uh, read for you verse 9 again. Psalm 36 verse 9 says, you hear how similar this is to John 1. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. With you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So all life comes from him. We're all derivative of his life because in him was life. And all light comes from him. Everything that's good and true and lovely comes from God. Because he is the light of men. So in other words, in the light of Christ, existence and re, like reality and rationality and reason snap into focus because they're being oriented around their appropriate perspective. We're never going to understand existence until we understand Jesus. That's why the Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin starts with this observation that the two great intellectual endeavors of life are to know God and know yourself. And you can never know yourself unless you know God. And he's right. Romans 11 says about Jesus, from him and through him and to him are all things. From him are all things, to him or through him and to him. In other words, Jesus Christ is the organizing principle of reality. It's nothing less than that. Only through Jesus can we actually understand ourselves and this world that we inhabit. And only through Jesus can we truly have wisdom. Our reason and rationality from God comes alive when the light of Christ shines on us. Our lives cohere in Christ. Our lives have purpose and meaning in Christ. He was the light of men. Number three, 
we're moving from awestruck by his glory into the realm of comfort from his power. Number three, verse five begins with this third proposition. The light shines in the darkness. Think back to Genesis 1, um, the story of creation, right? The first thing God did was speak light into the primordial darkness. That's the first thing he did. He didn't create Adam and Eve first. He said, light exist. It, it, it's that literal in the Hebrew. Be light, and light was. That's what he started with. Then God created the sun, this great light in our solar system to shine in the darkness. And then he created a second light called the moon. This one would reflect the sun's light. It has no intrinsic light of its own, the moon. It reflects the sun's light into the darkness of our night. And when he created man and woman in his image, he created us like moons to his sunlight, if you will. We have no intrinsic glory of ourselves. We're designed and created to reflect God's light and God's glory, to image him. That's what it means to reflect him into the darkness of this world. But when Adam and Eve sinned against God, it was like the moon saying to the sun, I don't need your light. I'll generate my own light. Thank you very much. It's absurd. We are not self-existent and self-sufficient like God is. Without the sun, the moon is just a pockmarked lump of rock. And what are we but clay without the light of God? But when the word became flesh, Jesus entered the light, right? The word, the life, the light entered the darkness of this world and perfectly reflected God's glory for the first time. And he did it in the darkest of nights. Jesus is both fully God, full of life and light in and of himself and fully man, the perfect image of the invisible God. Jesus is the word, the life, and the light of men. And I love this statement. The light shines in the darkness. He became flesh. He stepped into the night to shine when we couldn't. By the way, notice the verb tense, shines. That's a present tense verb, right? John doesn't say the light shone in the darkness. It's really important. John was writing this book decades after Jesus died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father, but he didn't say the light shone. The light shone for a while, but now he's gone. Why not? Because Jesus, when he became human, it was a forever choice. He never got unhuman again. Which means when he died and was raised, uh, raised from the dead, given this new creation body that we've been talking about, he didn't get less human. He got more human. Which means we're just pending humanity right now. We will be truly human 
for the first time when we stand up in the resurrection and look Jesus in the face. So that means the light shines in the darkness because heaven has a heartbeat. There's a human on the throne of the universe and he sent his spirit to live in his people and help us shine. And every light that we scatter in this darkness is his light, not ours. We have no glory. We're not self-existent. But he's glorious and he's generous with his glory. And we get to reflect that. As we live lives of repentance and faith, as we love people like Jesus love, loved, as we look to him for forgiveness and as we look to him for strength, we begin to image God more and more. It's the 2 Corinthians 3.18 principle. The more we turn the mirror of our lives toward the light of Christ, the more we reflect that light out around us. And that leads us to our last point. Number four, the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, when I was a little kid, I was terribly afraid of the dark. And my parents did three things to help me with that fear. I was having night terrors for years from the age of about four to 11. The first thing they did was they got me a puppy named Eddie, very cute dog to sleep at the foot of my bed. That's entirely beside the point. I just like thinking about Eddie. Um, the second thing they did was they taught me a song I'm so glad I learned to trust him, precious Jesus, Savior, friend. And I know that he is with me. He'll be with me till the end. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. That's a good one to learn when you're afraid of the dark. The third thing, the thing that I actually want to talk about is my dad made me a lamp. Uh, he was a, what he is, he's still with us, um, a, a craftsman, if you will. And I was into baseball at the time. I know that's hard to believe. <laughs> and so he made like a home plate base with a bat and a ball and then the lampshade. It was very nice. I still have it somewhere. And that lamp shone in the darkness of my room for years. And you know what? The darkness never once overcame it. You know why? Because darkness can't transcend light. It can't. You can go into a dark room, flip a light switch, and darkness flees. But you can't go into a light room and turn on a dark switch. Light is more powerful than darkness. It's designed that way on purpose. In his light do we see light. Reality and even its design, the molecules like Titus was talking about, they begin to make sense in Christ. The light of Christ shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So no matter how bad things seem to be in your life right now, no matter how bad our political prospects get, no matter how far off base the next generation veers or whatever, the darkness has not, will not, cannot overcome the light. The inevitable ultimate reality of our future is the glory of Christ. The prophet says, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord 
will cover the earth like water covers the seas. In other words, as wet as water is, is how saturated this world will be with the light of Christ. Praise God for that. Darkness can't transcend light. Death cannot overcome life. You see how John connected those ideas. He was life. In him was life. And the life was the light. These are very connected ideas for John. And death cannot overcome life like darkness can't overcome light. You guys familiar with Leonard Cohen, songwriter? Leonard Cohen wrote the song Hallelujah that Jeff Buckley made famous. He was one of my favorite songwriters for a long time. He died, I think, a few years ago. And I think it was on his last album. Um, He was a sad man. And he was an angry man, angry at God. Um, And his last album had probably the saddest song yet. Here's how it began. If you are the dealer, I'm out of the game. If you are the healer, it means I'm broken and lame. If thine is the glory, then mine must be the shame. You want it darker? We kill the flame. Isn't that tragic? But he's half right. The people who walked in darkness and loved it and hated the darkness, I was one of them. They did kill the flame. On the cross 2,000 years ago, it seemed like the light of men was snuffed out. It seemed like the one who had life in and of himself was killed. Well, he was. And Cohen, Leonard Cohen, looks at that moment and thinks, God is a monster to put his son on the cross. I wonder if you've thought that before. I have. Don't shy away from hard questions. Work through them. They're worth asking. But here's how I think Jesus would respond to Leonard Cohen's accusation. He would say, I am God. And I'm truly free. No one twisted my arm. I came here for you. I did this for you. Your sins on my back. That's what I think he'd say. Here's his actual words from the Gospel of John. Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And he goes on to say, and I have the power to take it up again. (laughs) The power of Jesus. He did lay it down of his own accord, freely. And only the self-existent one could do that. He laid down his life for children of the darkness who would kill the flame. But the darkness has not overcome the light. And death couldn't overcome the Son of God. Listen to this, one of my favorite verses, Acts 2.24. God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. There's no dark switch that can put out the light of Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is proof then that he's God. Proof that his atoning sacrifice on your behalf was accepted. It's proof that all who trust in him are now justified and have a good relationship with God the Father, untarnished by the deeds we do. And it's living proof that the darkness has not, will not, and cannot overcome 
the light. That's how to take comfort in the power of the word. We preach that to our souls. That's what truth is. Now, by way of conclusion, let me walk you on a little excursion, no pun intended, um, from 1 John 1. I'm going to read verses 5 through 10. John says, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Friends, this is our fork in the road. Whether you've heard the gospel for the first time today or the 450,000th time, doesn't matter. Because right now you've got a choice to make. We're responsible for the knowledge we have. The light has come. We must do something with it. The choice is, are we going to walk in the darkness or walk in the light? There's no in-between. There's no twilight with Christ. To stay in the darkness and to reject Jesus feels like the easy choice. It feels like the comfortable choice because the lie that we implicitly believe, we all are bent naturally toward this, is deeply insidious and sneaky. It goes something like this. No one needs to know how bad I really am and I'll still be loved and accepted and have a good life. I can have my cake and eat it too. I'll take the good life and I'll keep my dark secrets. As long as I keep them managed, they're not going to tank my life. It's not true. The darkness offers no real lasting pleasure. No real fellowship and friendship. No freedom. You know, how many people, no matter how many people you're with, if you're in the dark, you're alone. There's something deeply isolating about the darkness. Here's the other angle of those lies. It's, it's if we say to ourselves, walking in the light, like stepping out into honesty with God, is too risky. It's too vulnerable. It's not safe to be honest. What will happen to me if I'm real? And I understand that feeling deeply, very, very deeply. But that's why the mighty reassurance of Christ is here in verses 7 and 9. Let me read them again. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, and then we pause and go, what's going to happen? Is it risky? We have fellowship with one another, so you're not alone anymore. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He doesn't shame you for how far you've fallen. He cleans you. He makes you dignified not dishonored. 
if the Spirit of God is tucking on your heartstrings right now, then you need to know how to step out into the light and start walking with Jesus. And maybe it's the first time or maybe it's not. doesn't matter. Here's how. You talk to him. doesn't have to be um, articulate and profound. It doesn't have to be public. You can say it in your heart right now. You can go somewhere private later and say it out loud. You can shout it. You can say it with a friend. It doesn't matter. But talk to God. And you agree with him about who he says you are. And you agree with him about who he says he is. Just say, I believe you. And you're right about me. That's the first step. It's the easiest and the hardest thing in the world. Then step two, you just keep doing that day after day. You don't need to be re-saved once you're saved. But like Jesus said in John 13, if I've washed you, you have no need to be washed, but you, your feet. You're walking around in a dirty, dark world. Your feet are going to get a little muddy. And you're going to come to Christ and say, I feel so dirty. And he's going to say, it's okay. Let me just wash your feet. No one, listen, no one matures out of confessing your sins to God. Not this side of heaven. Step three, instead of doing the same old deeds of darkness that we've all done, we don't just dart out into the light for a minute to make ourselves feel better and then go back to the same old life. We walk in the light, not dart into the light. So we ask him to just help. Say, Lord, can you just help me live a life that honors you instead of dishonors you? See, Jesus lived a life that honors you. And that frees us now because we don't have anything to prove to God. Jesus proved it. We don't have any, anything to earn with God. Jesus earned it. Jesus paid it. You got no more punishment left to pay, no more debt to pay off. So you can live from love. There's nothing more free than that. But we do have to turn, don't we? We do have to actually receive Jesus and start walking with him. But now you can. From mercy instead of for mercy. Not to earn it, but because you have the love of God. If you trust Jesus like that, and it really is the simplest and difficult, most difficult thing in the world. If you trust Jesus like that and you walk in the light with him, he gives you his life and he fills you with his light. And no matter what comes in your life, you will flourish. And no darkness whatsoever will have the last word in your story. Let's prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. I'll pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you. We just praise you and admire you um, for your freedom 
that you did the hardest, most painful, most difficult, horrid thing. You underwent the most horrid thing <coughs> freely. No one twisted your arm. You didn't have to. You aren't diminished without us. Yet you said that you take joy in us and it's love that puts you on that cross. I barely understand, but we believe you and we love you for it. Let's take a moment to just pray silently.